Well, if you're visiting with us, we're so grateful that you've joined this uh, Wallace body of believers. Several weeks ago, we started a series for the semester from the Apostle Peter's first epistle. It's called First Peter. It's towards the back of the New Testament. We took uh, two Sundays to sort of frame what we know about the life of this man. This morning, we jump right in to chapter 1. I'll read the first two verses And then as you can see from the bulletin, we'll also read one of the last verses, chapter 5, at the end of the epistle, kind of looking at bookends, as it were. So this is the Word of God, 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Chapter 5, verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. I was terribly amused the first time I saw a log rolling contest. Do you know what that is? Uh, Two people stand on opposite ends of a big log in a body of water, and they do things with their feet until they spin the other guy off. Very interesting, very amusing, unless you feel like that represents your life. Many of you feel like it is incredibly challenging to find balance, to stay put. You're facing challenges of health, finances, challenges with mom and dad, challenges with brothers and sisters, challenges with your kids, challenges at work. Life can feel like a log-rolling contest. You want peace, you want stability, and it is really, really challenging to find. And our culture would tell you, you just need a prettier pair of shoes. You just need a better haircut. You need a greater social currency. You need to work on your self-esteem. That'll give you stability. Actually, the Bible says the only thing, the only thing, that can make you stand in life is the grace of Jesus Christ. The grace of Jesus Christ. Peter is writing to people that we're going to discover have a whole lot of trials, fiery trials, he calls them. They really want to stand. They're getting pushed and knocked off the log in a variety of ways, just like you and me. And he says that the only reality to give your life an unshakable foundation is grace. Look how he begins in verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. A great way to start the day. Lord, multiply grace and peace to me, to my wife, to my kids, to my parents, to those I work with. Multiply grace and peace to this beloved congregation. So what do we know about grace? Number one, it is super abounding. 
God knows life as a log roll, and he has more grace for you than you need in his son, Jesus Christ. You know when you go to those ice cream stores, and it's not the soft serve that comes out of the machine, it's in those little freezers, that they, they have the ice cream in those tubs, and, and the person stands over the flavor you want, and they, and they scoop like this. And so I'm the type of guy that's watching very carefully, and I'm like, now don't skimp. Keep scooping, put as much on there as you possibly can. Anybody identify with me? God doesn't scoop skimpily. He gives you the entire container of ice cream. He is abounding in every grace that you need. Grace when you need it, grace perfectly suited to your need, more than you need, as long as you need it. Here's why this is practical. I was talking to one of my children this week in a trial. Very, very distressed. And I was able to say to my child, Jesus has particular grace for your particular trial. Because he loves you and is abundant in his provision for this very specific thing you're going through. It's just, isn't it wonderful to have that as a parent to tell my children? This is the message of 1 Peter. Whatever comes our way, Jesus is there with grace. So he starts the letter, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. He ends it, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Somehow this epistle is about grace. Actually carries over into his second epistle. He begins, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. That tells you that the fountainhead of grace is the knowledge of God. And it must be the goal of grace, grace to know God to enjoy him, to savor him, to be secure in him, to trust him, to pursue him, to relish him. Grace and peace be multiplied in the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. And he concludes his second epistle, grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are all on a journey of growing, understanding accessing, never outliving our need for the grace of Jesus in the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. My wife is always helpful as a wife of a preacher to say, now you need to make sure when you use certain words, you need to define them. That's what I'm going to do right now. Take note, dear, I'm defining grace. Grace is... Multidimensional and all-encompassing. Everyone in the world needs and is a recipient of grace, whether or not you're religious or not. Theologians call this common grace. It is a benevolent God's interest in the entire welfare of his creation. So that David would say in Psalm 33, the loving kindness of God covers the earth. The only reason life works, the only reason the earth hasn't been destroyed by coronavirus or violence is the grace of God. You may not be a believer in Jesus Christ, follower, believer in God or the Bible, 
but you are a recipient of God's grace. Every breath you take, every beating of your heart, every working of your brain, everything you have ultimately has come from God. David's way of putting it in Psalm 145, the Lord is good to all, to all. His mercies are over all his works. Read, he is restraining human beings from being left to themselves, ruining his creation. God's restraining that. When Paul preached at Lystra, not to Jews, he contextualized his message to non-Jews, he appealed to God as creator, how God gives you rains and satisfying your hearts with food and good things. The common grace of God. I read in my devotions yesterday in Luke, Jesus says, we're to be merciful as our Father is merciful. How is the mercy of God manifested? God is gracious to ungrateful and evil people. It's the common grace of God. Now let's be a little bit more specific. Christians tend to think of grace in salvation terms, and that is quite appropriate. So the first sense I'm going to give you is that by God's grace, he delivers us from judgment through Jesus, through what Jesus supplies, not what we supply. Christianity is the only religion where everything necessary, God supplies, particularly what is needful to be right with God. God supplies. It is through Jesus, God's riches at Christ's expense. And here it's helpful to compare grace to mercy. They're both concepts, as it were, of the love of God from the heart of God, his love, we are recipients of mercy and grace. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. It's a justice category. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Jesus took the penalty for our sins as a sacrificial act of mercy. He took the penalty, free from condemnation through the work of Jesus by his cross. Mercy, not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. God giving you what you could never earn, deserve. It's getting life, paradise, acceptance. It's also God's disposition towards you. It's his favor. You are his beloved. It's as if wherever you are, particularly at the judgment seat, Jesus puts his arm around you as brother or sister and says to his father, they're with me. Put their debts to my account. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The way God makes you right is Jesus pleads his righteous life before his holy Father. And on the strength of that, the Father is absolutely and utterly satisfied so you have no more to give God than Jesus has supplied. He's our advocate, our defense attorney, pleading before the throne, pleading himself. Nothing we've done. He takes our debts. And we got a reminder of this every morning when we get in our cars. You've got three gears, reverse, neutral, and forward. So look at those gears when you get in your car every morning. Is God against me, reverse? Is he moving away from me? No. That's a denial of what Jesus came to do for me if I've trusted in him. Is God neutral towards me, sort of indifferent to me? No. Put the car in forward. It is God's full pedal to the metal, his favor towards you. He's all out for your good. 
for your preservation. It's God's determination to provide, to protect, to promote according to His personal plan for your good and glory. And that's what gives us this peace He mentions. It's confidence, comfort, assurance. God is for me. Who can be against me? I belong to Him. He's working out a plan. I think Jamie alluded to it in his prayer. It's a good plan. So grace is deliverance. It's his disposition. It's God's determination to provide for his own. He's a, just a wonderful father. And it's a deluge. You catch the drift here with pathetic preachers making everything begin with D. Chris and I couldn't find a D word for common grace, so I didn't find one. <laughs> if there's one, tell me and I'll put it in. <laughs> it's God's, the deluge of everything necessary for life and godliness. You don't get trickling grace, you get a deluge of grace. I like the way Paul puts it in Romans 8.32, for he who did not spare his own son. See, he annexes everything necessary for God and license by arguing from the life for arguing from the greater to the lesser. He who did not spare his own son, that's what God should have done in justice, but in mercy, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? If Christ is given to us from the Father, the greatest thing you could possibly ever imagine, then all other things come with it. He'll give you everything necessary. A slight variation, Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. If you belong to Jesus by faith, if you are united to Christ, if you are in Christ, you're blessed with everything in Christ, every spiritual blessing. And then some of you know he begins to outline all of that in that chapter. It's breathtaking in its survey of grace. Peter would write in his second epistle, chapter 1, his divine power has granted to us, gifted to us, given freely to us, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So God's grace is his irrepressible, immeasurable, abundant, all-sufficient ply supply of himself, his power, his presence, his forgiveness, his kindness, his care, his love, to keep you from ruining yourself and to enable you to enjoy, savor, serve, seek, and know Jesus Christ. There's never too little, nor there could possibly ever be too much. If you ask God for a toothpick, you get a towering redwood tree. That's grace. It's able to make you stand. So he says in chapter 5, this is the true grace of God. Stand for a minute. Now that word true is important. That means genuine or authentic versus counterfeit or fraudulent. So there must be something going on in the lives of the recipients of this letter that is a fraudulent grace. So, point number two. Let's look at counterfeit grace. Some variations of grace that you might run into in your life that really aren't grace. I've teased out a couple for you. 
One, grace as a reward for doing good. You fundamentally think of your, your life as a report card. At the end of the day, you get grades on how good you were. You think you get grace because you've done a lot of good for God. And if you're failing, you're miserable. If you're failing at Christianity, you may be in the brink of giving up on Christianity. That's because you're under impressions of a false notion of grace. If you're succeeding, you think you're succeeding, I'm an A-plus kind of guy, you may be very critical and judgmental of other people and difficult to live with. How about grace that saves you, but from then on it's up to you? Yeah, I'm saved by grace, but now it's up to me. You're like Fred Flintstone. Remember him? He gets in his car, he gets a push, and then he's doing this. And you look at that and you go, do you ever get tired? Some of you are exhausted as Christians. You're just worn down. You're like Fred Flintstone. You read the first half of Philippians 2.14, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, and that's where you stopped. You didn't go on to the next verse. For God's at work in you, both the will and the work for his good pleasure. You don't sense the pleasure God has being in your life, working in your life, bringing to pass all that would please him and be good for you. Bedrock's not a fun place to live, is it? Do they still have Flintstones as a cartoon for kids? I have no earthly idea. Third, counterfeit grace. Grace for when you fail. It's like a tow truck. You only need a tow truck when your car breaks down. You only need grace when you break down. Some of us are pleading for grace every five minutes of the day. Grace is your get-out-of-jail-free card. It doesn't matter what I do. I'm pulling out the card and I get a pass from God. Doesn't matter how I live. Don't worry about righteousness, holiness, pleasing God. I'm saved by grace. It doesn't matter what I do. There's a kernel of truth in there. But it's a big, fat, counterfeit grace. Because the grace of God is powerful to deliver you from yourself into a new lifestyle where you're not a slave to your passions and your sin, which is what is getting you in trouble. There's a technical term theologians use for this thinking about grace. It's called antinomianism. It is a heresy. Since I'm saved by grace, it doesn't matter how I live. Absolutely not. For by grace you've been saved through faith and not out of yourselves. It is the gift of God that no one should boast. Next verse. For we're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God should prepare beforehand that we should walk in them. If there's no measure of fruit in your life, you have believed a false gospel. We saw in Sunday school that when Paul recounted his ministry with the Ephesian elders, the gospel he preached was faith in Jesus and repentance. That was last week's sermon. One last variation of false grace. He wants them standing in true grace. That is, grace that sort of disappears because now you're suffering. You're suffering and you think, God, stop looking on me with favor. The evidence God's looking on me with favor is everything's going fine. It's actually just the opposite. When the grace of God rests on you and me, we'll suffer. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And this epistle, as we'll see, is written to people who are suffering. They need to stand firm in grace. 
God has ordained our sufferings, we'll, we'll get into it later, for our good and for his glory. I want you to see, particularly if you're a stranger to Christianity, you don't consider yourself a Bible believer, you're not sure if you believe in God, I want you to understand this this morning about Christianity. It is not the religion of the strong. It is not the religion of the competent. It is not the religion of good people. It is not the religion of those who have their act together. It is just the opposite. Christ has come for the destitute, for the broken, for the desperate, for ruined people among whom I am chief among you. I love the way Jesus put it. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And in that grace, he shows you how sick you are, how unrighteous you are, that he might deliver you into an infinitely better way to live, living for him, to know him by grace. Can we put it this way? Grace always flows downhill. It comes to the needy. It comes to the weak. It never goes uphill as if Jesus is here as a personal trainer to make the strong stronger. Not even close. Now, isn't Peter exhibit A of that fact? And so I want to show you, thirdly, that the nature of transforming grace. When we meet Peter in the Gospel accounts, we, maybe this is what we tried to show for the last two weeks, he's, he's a guy just like us, well-intended, but um, quite a mess. And we could look at a number of situations that prove this. I'm only going to look at one from Matthew 16. Jesus has a retreat with the apostles. He's doing a reality check on who understands him, and he starts the retreat with a question. Who do the masses say that I am? Well, some say John the Baptist, some say the prophet, some say Elijah. Who do you say that I am? Peter's hand shoots up, first one that shoots up. You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus goes, spot on. By the way, I don't know if Peter heard this, but Jesus said, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. you in other words, you didn't figure that out. But my Father in heaven, you know me as Messiah because of grace. And then, and then Jesus goes on, and this is verse 21 of Matthew 16. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. That's like getting an A-plus on a test and on the other side, the second half of the test, getting an F-minus. This was a real downer. Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What did Peter drastically need? A true appraisal of what Jesus came to do. Got something of who Jesus is, Messiah, but he had an idea of a Messiah that would do things for him that wasn't quite what he needed to know in order to be saved. He lacked a true appraisal of what Christ came to do. Die for sinners. And then you come into the book of Acts and this faithless fisherman has become a new creature. He looks 
like something otherwise humanly impossible. Bold, confident, fearless, self-abandoned, fierce loyalty to Jesus, backing it up with unrelenting proclamation of who Jesus is. He gets it now. And he's been filled with the Holy Spirit. That's why I chose the passage from Acts that Frank read earlier. Let me read some follow-up to that. Acts 5.28, when they brought them in, the apostles, including Peter, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you fill Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Do what you want to us. And that is, in fact, what we read on in chapter 5, verse 40. When they called the apostles in, they beat them. You need to stop and think about that. That wasn't stop speaking about Jesus. That wasn't time out for 15 minutes in the corner. They beat them. It was supposed to hurt. It was supposed to be a major deterrent to continuing to talk about Jesus. It needed to hurt so much that the next time they were tempted to open their mouths, they felt the pain in their body. They beat them. as many Christians today are beaten for their faith or worse. And they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. I would have gone straight to my lawyer or my representative or found something worse. They rejoiced. He's a radically changed man by grace. Grace is making him stand. It's the difference between cutting something with an electric electric carving knife that isn't plugged in and one that is plugged in. So the spirit of Jesus is with Peter. The spirit of the risen Christ is with Peter. The spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, the spirit that was with Jesus in his sufferings, is now at work in Peter that he might find glory in his sufferings. Where are you asking the Spirit to work in your life? Jesus, give me, give me grace. Holy Spirit, create in me more humility. Create in me more boldness. By your grace, make me more prayerful. By your grace, give me a greater hunger for your word. By your grace, make me other-centered in the pattern of Jesus. By your grace, fill me with encouragement by the Holy Spirit, with hope by the Holy Spirit, with generosity by the Holy Spirit, with zeal for service by the Holy Spirit, with self-control by the Holy Spirit. There is superabounding grace for your need. And if you're not sure what it is, ask the Holy Spirit to be unleashed into your soul to expose it. And he will drive you to God's word and it will be exposed. If you pray... It'll be shown. Finally, something I'm calling pilgrim grace. Look at verse 1 again. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, an apostello. He is one sent by Jesus. He was with Jesus in his ministry. He's an eyewitness of the resurrection and has a personal commission by Jesus Christ himself to be sent with nothing less than being empowered with the Spirit of God so that Peter's words are the words of God. 
He's speaking eternal, infallible, inerrant truth. He writes, To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are regions in present-day Turkey. Commentators speculate about the order that they're listed. Some think this is the order that Silvanus is to carry the letter. We don't think he's the amuensis who, who dictated law, Paul dictated the letter to, but the person through whom the letter is brought to these regions. Not super important for our purposes. But look how he describes his audience. They are elect exiles of the dispersion. I'll deal with election next week. What about this phrase, exiles of the dispersion? He's giving them a new identity. And he's using language. Now the church there is made up of Jews and Gentiles, but the Jewish audience would understand, oh, exiles of the dispersion, that describes the people of God, Israel, geographically or physically. They'd spend time in another country as exiles, Egypt, Babylon, and they were currently dispersed, basically from 200 B.C. to 000 A.D. They'd been dispersed in the technical term called the dispersion around the Mediterranean basin. This was God's way of preparing the way for the spreading of the gospel, among other things. So a Bible-believing Jew would hear exile of the dispersion, language describing Israel physically, geographically. Peter transforms it to apply to Christians and what they are spiritually. We are exiles of the dispersion. I'm not wild about the word exile because that tends to mean you've been put in a place against your will, carried away and put in a place against your will. Most of you live in Prince George's County, as it were, according to your will. So sojourner is perhaps a better way to see the word. You're a pilgrim. You're a traveler on a journey. You make no claim to a permanent physical homeland. The word literally means to live alongside. Now, interestingly, he's writing to people who have houses like you do, in cities like you do, who have probably no plans of moving like you do, but nonetheless, they are sojourners. They're on a journey. This isn't home. Paul's version of this was Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we await a savior. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that uh, all those saints who died in faith, Hebrews 11.13, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. This is the identity of the people of God. So let's just tease that out for a second. Is Peter saying, you and I are to wake up tomorrow morning and say, Lord, I'm dispersed. I live here by your kind and sovereign providence. This is the place you've planted me. This is the place you want me to bloom. May my life by grace be a fragrance of the risen Christ. May my words, my actions, the way I live, how I drive, what I do, all be a visible testimony that grace has been lavished upon me. Let me live here for your purposes. I'm sojourning through. 
sojourning through. It's good for me to read this morning in Psalm 16 that in the Lord's presence there's fullness of joy and at his right hand pleasures forever. I can't get that here. That's when I'm home. I need to be reminded of that. Every morning, I'm sojourning through. And so it takes grace, beloved, to stay balanced on the log. To stay balanced between not becoming irrelevant in the culture in which you live or becoming too complacent in the culture in which you live. What's complacently look like? Complacency look like? It's what Francis Schaeffer warned about, I think it was the church at the 20th century, end of the 20th century, that Christians would become committed to their own personal peace and prosperity. Now, do you know that temptation in your heart? That the ultimate devotion, the ultimate temptation for you is to be committed to your own personal peace and prosperity. Complacency. Loving this world too much. James warns, don't, don't, James warns, don't love this world. That's a temptation. Complacency. Not seeing yourself on mission, sojourning. On the other hand, as it were, having such affection, which we should, for glory, that we are completely unattentive to the needs around us. We are irrelevant. Is my life irrelevant? Is the church irrelevant? That's the challenge. Grace frees us from both. It keeps us finely balanced on the one who was nailed to a log to fill you with his peace, his joy, his power, his vision, his glory. Let's pray. Lord, pour out your grace upon us where we need it. It is perfectly suited and all-sufficient for our trials, our struggles, our aches, our pains, our sorrows, our sins, and it is necessary to find this glorious balance. Not becoming irrelevant, not becoming complacent. So revive us to that end. Thank you for giving yourself to us. Give us greater and clearer sight of that cross. In Jesus' name, amen.